you and your daily actions are really important for someone somewhere now, but also someone somewhere later. Your negative actions and po positive actions. Hello, and welcome to the Connectedness Podcast. Just as you might have guessed, I talk about connection and connectedness on this podcast, our connection with everything in the world around us. Whether you see it or not, we're all connected, and it doesn't matter if it's our dog, our cat, our god, our body, and I'll also talk about some more abstract connections like our career or our land, our community, our emotions, your body. Life is all about connection, so the sooner we recognize that, the sooner we can have an easier, more meaningful life. I will talk about these connections through different lenses, things like synchronicities and coincidences or just everyday little bits of magic and miracles that we, we usually dismiss. It's really important that we pay attention to all of this so we can live an easier, more meaningful life. So welcome to the show. I'm your host, Karen Cleveland. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. I am really excited to introduce my guest this week. So Zachary S. Brooks, PhD, has two books out right now, probably working on a third, but one of them was just released last week, and I was looking through it, and it's it's so on target. It has to do with meaning and purpose and spirituality, and he calls these books, he calls his, his method, uh, The Human Algorithm. So we're going to hear about that today and how you know it fits into the meaning and purpose of our lives. So Zachary draws upon his experience of being an actor, a world traveler. He's co-founded Eugenome Biotech, which is a bioinformatics company dedicated to innovating bioinformatics solutions to help advance personalized medicine, and his serving as the president of World Transplant Athletes, which is a nonprofit that provides research and best practices from one organ recipient to another, in addition to him also being an organ transplant recipient. So bringing all this experience forward into this life, I look forward to hearing about it. Welcome to the show, Zach. Thank you, Karen. This is really uh, a really nice pleasure to be here today. It's one of these sort of special pleasures in life that you don't strive for, but then you're like, oh, what a sweet piece of fruit I get to hang out with today. That's, yeah, that's spectacular because something we probably couldn't even have imagined 10, 20 yeah. years ago, that this is where we would be, Absolutely. right? <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So before we get into um, your books and your current work, which, uh, like I said earlier, are fascinating and, and write up my personal alignment line, um, why don't you tell us how you got there, where where you started and what was your personal journey in your development here? Yeah, I think um, I can certainly talk about a lot of movement, in, i.e. travel and places I've lived. And through that, I think I've developed, um, you know, reflecting on a little bit, just a practice of living, which is trying to do a lot of things at once. And I think it's just my personality. So I was born in Denver, Colorado. I've lived in nine American states, six countries. And some of that was just through family growing up. And to, in this case, it was my mom's job who moved us. She was a director of uh, various insurance companies. My dad always found work as a technician for um, groups working on probes from Mars out of space kind of things wow. and so forth. So I moved a lot growing up there, but then, and then we traveled a lot as a family around the United States growing up. And I think 
um, that probably just inculcated a, a desire to travel a lot. So when I was 17, I went to Europe, played soccer there uh, for a while. And then I've just continued to travel and learn languages my entire life. And um, I, I kind of have two working assumptions. I, I working assumptions, and I take this directly from uh, language learning. So people always ask me, so how do you learn languages? What's the best method and so forth? And number one is obsession. So whatever method you like, just obsess over it. And so whatever thing you're doing, just obsess over it. And, and the other one is um, people often say when they learn a new language, oh, I can't learn that. And, um, oh, I'm not very good at that. And so you set yourself up for a certain kind of um, results when you say that. But my working assumption in every single language and every single topic that I ever come across is like, I know that perfectly. I'm just having a bad day. Oh. And so it kind of makes you feel like, oh, I can learn this really complicated bioinformatics topic or biotechnology topic or physics topic that I've never come across before. If you just assume you know everything and it doesn't, you know, but you're just having a bad day, you have yeah. humility, but you also give yourself a permission to learn and believe that you can learn. That That's fantastic because that really is the truth, isn't it? We mm -hmm. actually do know it. So I think that's how I would sort of summarize myself to start with in terms of thinking about the many things I've done is like, I just assume that I can do it. I'm just having a bad day. So what do you think along this journey and live, learning all these languages, which by the way, I've been trying to learn Swahili because my husband is Kenyan, but I keep telling myself I can't do it. So I'm going to have to change that mindset there. But what, where did the meaning and purpose begin to come in? How did that evolve for you? Yeah, um, I'm kind of coming some circle back to it with my third book, but um, I think, you know, my, a lot of my life I've been around different religious groups and I've felt very much rejected by almost all of those religious groups. So I think you know, my spiritual journey is sort of a, a negative start. I mean, not negative in terms of like life is horrible, but, you know, I wasn't accepted into a community to start with and like, oh, I found my faith or I found my spirit or I found my uh, comfort in a group of people who call themselves whatever name by whatever religious group, uh, multiple groups, um, and it happened over and over and over again. And so, you know, maybe I have some desire for connecting to larger, larger things in life, you know, not just who we are as humans, but who we are as spirits, how that connects to us as historical figures. I mean, whatever someone did in the past certainly helps us going forward. But I think a lot of my, um, a lot of a lot of it's it's not because I have a direct spiritual connection to groups. It's actually the opposite. So I've been an outsider oftentimes in my life. And so what is it like to be an outsider? How do you interact with insiders? And then the other kind of thing that is more of like a very concrete example. So during my first kidney transplant, I got at Stanford University in Northern California. Um, I had a roommate and it was his third transplant. And he was probably 25 years older than I was at that time. And he was from Greece and he grew up in a time where he saw Nazi soldiers like uh, mow down people with these machine guns wow. in the streets. They would line them up, probably Jewish or gypsies or whatever their, their thing was. And then he eventually immigrated to the United States and he got his first transplant in the 1970s, second one sometime in the 80s. And he was telling me stories about you know, the first and second transplant, the first one didn't last more than 24 hours and they went right back to dialysis. And he said, people mm. were dying, you know, after the, their transplants 
soon, within a week, because they didn't understand the anti-rejection yeah. medications and how to manage that. So he just put himself off the list completely for another 20, you know, maybe 15 years at that point. So fast forward to 1999, he got his third one. He happened to be in the same room as me. And he wheeled over his, whatever it's called, the, the thing that holds all the, the tubing the IV pole. Um, to my room. Oh, okay. What is it? Oh, no, I thought it was yeah. the IV pole, but it's the kidney stuff. So, yeah. Well, no, it's, no, it was, no, it was an IV pole, but it had a little like, platform on it where you can put some things. And he used that as some sort of lectern. And he gave me a speech of like protecting your kidney and so forth. But what he was really sharing with me, how I interpret it is that, you know, we're part of the human parade that he himself had to suffer through, through some things to give me a better life. So he was a data point in how to get better in terms of getting to organ, the anti-rejection medications and the doctors and nurses and caregivers a lot across the spectrum for those 20 some years we're really working so I could benefit. So I'm just doing now what I can for someone else to benefit. So I just call it the human parade. Wow. And that human parade is how I probably derive whatever spirituality. Now I've written two books and written a th writing a third book now. So I'm thinking about it in a different way, but that's probably how I've got to this point. Wow. Okay. So let's, let's go the science uh, route for a minute. Tell me a little bit more about your you know, the World Transplant Athletes and the Eugenome Project or or not project, business. Sure, biotech. Well, yeah, so um, in terms of, I have a PhD from the University of Arizona and I was hooded, which means I graduated from both the College of Science and the College of Humanities. I happen to be in a program called Second Language Acquisition and Teaching that allowed you to take courses from many colleges. And most people would take classes from two colleges. I took classes from seven Wow. You know, engineering, science, engineering, law, um, social science, humanities, and there's one other I'm missing. I think I mentioned six. So I'm very much a person who likes humanities a lot, and I really love science at the same time. So my science background at the PhD level was mostly cognitive science, and the language background was mostly uh, the humanities. But of course, there's a lot of crossover. So I'm very much both of those. So in terms of the world transplant athletes, I mean, I've had the two kidney transplants from my parents. So I have a deep connection to transplantation. Of course, I'm very uh, thankful for my donor. And I, I've been around the world of um, helping, you know, trying to advocate for um, don donation of some sort for a long time. And after I've been around it for a long time at a domestic and state and international level, I decided to form World Transplant Athletes in 2021. And right at that point, we just posted things on, on Instagram and interacted with a lot of different transplant recipients around the world. And we're doing this in multiple languages. And fast forward now two years, we have 22 recipients from every continent of the world speaking 11 languages who create content for other recipients. And mostly we just share with each other what we're doing in, uh, in a physical way. So are you walking? Are you exercising? Are you moving in some way to take care of your organ but really there's a lot of benefits from, that come from that and now we're having a whole research program we're setting up with people from stanford and the mayo clinic to really investigate how people can um, be active with their transplant um, to increase their quality of life and their quantity of life as well so we're doing a lot of research with the world transplant athletes and it's called worldtransplantathletes.org if you want to check it out also on instagram and other places so that's world transplant athletes in terms of Eugenome, um, I've been in five startup companies, and three of them are life science companies at this point. And the last two were from University of Arizona. 
um, commercialization office. So more, most large universities have some sort of commercialization office, which is the idea is you take a, let's say a professor's research and maybe she has a fantastic idea, but she's an academic. You know, maybe that idea though could be commercialized and maybe should be commercialized in order to benefit a human with a new drug, a new, a new therapy, a new technique or so forth. And then you take that idea and then you commercialize it. You, you make it into a company that people will get benefit from. And so Eugenome Biotech is one of those companies and it's a bioinformatics company. In our case, we use uh, software and data tools to analyze data to provide, hopefully down the line, better um, gene therapeutics or immunotherapies or something. So um, that's what Eugenome is right now. And that's uh, eugenomebiotech.com. Awesome, thank you. So when you received your transplants, I can only, you know, look at the outside and make guesses about it. Is there some kind of spiritual component to the contemplation that happens about receiving someone else's organ into your body? Well, there's, yeah, I mean, you can go, <laughs> you can fall into that world easily because it is really mind-numbing if you think about how incredible it is. And especially if you receive, um, I don't know, especially if you receive a stranger's organ, you know, you connect with humanity in a very different way. I mean, it, it's so easy to be cynical in life, but if you connect, yeah. if you receive a, an organ, especially from a, a family who decided to let their loved ones or organs go at the moment that person died, you feel such an incredible power and obligation and commitment and gratitude towards all of humanity that you didn't know existed. And so Wonderful, wonderful thing about transplantation is that, you know, it really connects you to the best of humanity. And if once you're thinking about the best of humanity, you start to then build on top of that and think, and this is pretty spiritual. Mm -hmm. um, I've had a few moments. I mean, during my first transplant, there was complications. And if they didn't operate me on me right away, I probably would have died within a few hours. And my parents were with me and they were, of course, just beside themselves. And I remember looking up as I was on the gurney watching the tiles pass by. And I just thought, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be here right now. And there was a lot of comfort in that. Like my pain level was so high that I couldn't even feel mm -hmm. any pain. And they're probably giving me some drugs at that moment as well. But the pain was so high, I got past a pain threshold that I just didn't even notice it. And I just went in this kind of surreal state. And I thought, well, this is where I'm supposed to be right now. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. there's a, a, plenty of spiritual moments that come from that. Um, and then you know, it depends on the, the person themselves. Maybe they become more spiritual. I think a lot of people just have some sort of applied philosophy after a transplant. Like, I'm going to live well, and every second of my life is going to be lived to the, its maximum. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where I probably would fit in is like some sort of applied, um, if I don't live today well, then I'm wasting all this good gift that I got, in this case, right. um, a chance at life. Right, right. So what... What has been the inspiration then that led to your first book and now your second, third, and, you know, any forthcoming books? What's behind that? Well, the first book, um, it was through my PhD. It had nothing to do with my PhD at all, but I, I wanted to write for a long time in my life and I didn't know what, mm -hmm. um, but I'm probably a person who thinks in terms of like, how can I communicate this effectively? One of the, one of the ways to communicate effectively is through writing, you know, making videos, doing podcasts, a yeah. painting. There's all sorts of things you can do. And I started coalescing around when am I happiest? Now, I kind of was building off a book called Flow, 
um, by, I can't say his name. I think it's Michael. So it's a really long Polish name. He wrote a book called Flow. Yeah. And he was talking about Michael Jordan and some other people that they were completely engaged in what whatever activity, but also forgot about that activity. And I thought, well, what are the things that I'm happiest about? So again, kind of from that book, I started to put them in A's. So uh, the first book was called Discovering a Human Algorithm, How to Live with Meaning and Purpose. And there was a six A's in that. So the first A is athletics, to be human is to move. The second A is um, adventure, to be human is to explore. And the third A is uh, academics, to be human is to learn, and so forth. And so I put this into an algorithm form because algorithms are such um, ubiquitous concepts in our life, even if we have no idea about them. And since humans wrote algorithms, we should try to recapture the idea of an algorithm and put it into our own lives. And I just thought, you know, if I can give people six steps that they could go through, and maybe after three steps, they say, okay, I got it. I don't need this silly book anymore. But they figured out some for, for themselves. I thought that would be okay. really worthwhile. And the other part of that, that first book is that I had a friend of mine that I confided in that I was thinking about this. And she's like, yeah, that's kind of who I am too. So she felt that she was getting benefit from the 6A philosophy of you know, arts and academic and, and athletics and adventure and helping other people. So that was really nice. And then I published the first book in 2020, uh, May 2020. The pandemic was very much yeah. in full swing. And since that book was about movement, you know, a movement philosophy, to be human is to, is to move, to be human is to, to create, to be human is to help others. It was all very much like an active type of philosophy. Suddenly, I like, you know, millions, if not a billion people around the world were kind of confined to a space what is movement then? What if you're suddenly kind of depressed? And I'm not a, a therapist by any means, but I thought, well, I need to really rethink the second book. So my my partner was very um, friendly and critical all at the same time about the first book, <laughs> that it was too positive, you know, too American, too much. And some people would call this toxic positivity uh-huh. and so forth. And her questions really prompted me to think, about this. And I did want to do a second book. And it took me three years to actually finish that book because I was going through the pandemic like everyone else right. and trying to figure out what, what, what was next. So I, the, the second book is really based on emotions, starting with awareness all the way to activation. So again, try to provide people steps to walk through to get to the point where they could move. So if you're so depressed oh. and you can't even get out of bed, what kind of steps do you go through to get yourself your foot on the floor to start walking for the day? Mm. So the books were connected to each other. Um, and the three book series are all connected. And so you have a bridge metaphor of the foundation, the structure and the superstructure. So I've written now the foundation, which is the emotions. And I've written the structure, which are the actions. The third book is now the superstructure, which is more the spiritual component that we that I think that we we have and we can walk through our own steps to find something better about ourselves and connect with our, our own spirit. Right. So was there a defining moment for you in this whole creation process, starting with book one um, or before or after that you said, this is it. This is, you know, what I'm here to do. This is my my thing. Or do you feel like you're still looking for you know, one thing, or do we have many things? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the one thing that stuck with me, so my dad said this once, I, I thought he said it many times, and he um, has 
forgotten saying this, but it stuck with me so much. And it was sometime during my transplant. I forget when it was exactly, but my dad at one point said, um, being uh, positive is the only practical way to live, mm. which I wrote in my first book. And I think that stuck with me. So um, now I would call that kind of resilience, you know, resiliency, you know, like we all have bad days. I woke up today and I wasn't feeling fantastic at all, you know, like anyone else. And, you know, I guess I have put some more pressure on myself being a self-help author at this point to find the resiliency and to follow my formulas and so forth. But I think in terms of your question, like that particular thing stood out. Being positive is the only practical way to live. And the second part is like, I'm constantly discovering, discovering, you know, my spiritual self and so forth. I'm not religious. Um, and the third book is actually now a real dive into what spirituality means to me. And I'm, I'm interviewing people from different faiths. And so I've done three out of the nine to 12 I'm going for so far and learning very, you know, learning some things from each uh, person who's a, a head of his or her um, religious group. So it's been a fascinating journey. Yeah. Oh, I bet. And how are you going to, is that going to be part of a book or what are you going to do with that information? Yeah. So, well, this is part of the, the series. So the series okay. is called How to Algorithm. And okay. so the first book is Discovering Your Human Algorithm. The second one, Discovering What Activates You. The third one, Discovering What Awakens You. And that's the spiritual okay. uh, steps. And I'm I'm putting the book together now. I'm certain that uh, a chapter will be called Acceptance and one chapter will be called Awakens. Um, so I know those are the two chap two of the six chapters, and I'm figuring out the, the other chapters right now. I think looking at all the world's religions and pulling out, you know, the truths of those and even the lies or the dogma, or I shouldn't call them lies, but half-truths perhaps, or what we believe we know about a particular religion, even when we're in it, and um, just compiling all that would be fascinating. Is there anything that you wish you had known when you were younger? Now, obviously, you couldn't know what was going to happen in your life, but um, something you might have been able to tell yourself to make things easier or to to expand on your situation um, when you were younger that you would take more advantage of now? That Well, I think when I was younger, I did one you know, idea that actually served me well, and then I'll answer the other part in a second. So the, the part that served me well is, I came up with this, I was reading a lot of philosophy during one semester in college. I don't remember a lot of it in terms of who authored what, but one of it was that my only intelligence was that I wasn't that intelligent. So that was the idea of to keep you humble, to learn from a lot of other people, to constantly incorporate something smart that someone was saying at that moment, even if you disagreed with them, you didn't like them. And I think that's pretty been helpful. Mm -hmm. Um but I have a lot of challenges, I would say, in um, forgiveness, even though I've tried to work on that, um, you know, get sort of frustrated and angry or jealous or something like that. So I have a lot to learn still in my life. And I, when I teach, when I give seminars to students about bilingual decision making, which was my, my research, I usually pepper in around 10 slides of a bunch of failure stories. Um, of my life, because I want people to have a sense of failure is totally uh, okay. Yeah. You know, it's what you kind of do with it later. But also, you know, if someone sees me and seems uh, thinks to themselves, oh, he seems put together. Well, I think that's just uh, not a complete facade, but it's an ongoing process. And I think it's really important to share that, you know, we're, we're all in this together, trying to learn. I mean, I think the main thing is trying to um, be a better person, but it's not that you are on any given day, you know, mm -hmm. the perfect 
person. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think, you know, early on, I, that was just something that came to mind recently. I certainly had an idea of like, I'm not that smart. So just constantly try to learn from others, but you know, I, I'm constantly trying to figure out how to be more forgiving and um, try to be more compassionate, I would say, mm -hmm. towards other people. And I think as people, especially people who are close to you, because um, you have so many deep and complicated interactions with people who are really, really close to you. Yes. I think that's the hardest group of people sometimes to be forgiving and loving towards. I mean, a stranger is sometimes the easiest person. You can open up to the stranger and yeah. tell them your deepest, darkest, darkest secrets. And you feel fantastic and great. So you're unburdened yourself and or they did to you. It's really cool, you know, and the strangers are really important like that. But I think the forgiveness and the pains we feel about human relationships, they only come from people you really care about. You know, I mean, who's going to hurt you? Who's going to break your heart? Who's going to hurt you deeply? Right. Well, only someone you really care about, you know? Right. So they come from, you know, it, it's like the story that someone told me I was yelled at by doing a bad project for a vice president somewhere. And my friend said, well, you've seen it all wrong. Like not everyone gets yelled at by a person like that. And so, you know, we only get pain from being mm -hmm. in a deep relationship. Mm -hmm. So you have to try to reframe things in a, you know, in a moment of like angst and anger, you know, try to reframe it. Like, you know, I'm lucky to have this pain because it means I'm connected to these other humans in a very deep and loving way. Yeah. Even though we don't like the pain, sometimes it is, it's meaningful. Of course we hate it. Yeah. yeah we hate the pain. <laughs> Who doesn't, but you know, try to reframe it in a way that like gives you a little, a little pause for that second to move on. So you sound like um, you like to learn a lot. You you're always, um, I guess, self-educating, we say, do you have a system that where you like to get new information from? Do you have a reading program or do you take classes or what's your personal way of? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of things. I mean, I probably have, you know, a hundred tabs open in five different sort of browsers at the moment. And then I mm -hmm. try to close them once a week. Um, I take a lot of online classes. I sign up for a lot, take them for a few weeks at a time. And sometimes I just give them up. And I, I used to feel really bad about that. I don't feel about bad about that anymore because if I do something for three to four weeks, I get something out of it. I think yeah. a lot of platforms are fantastic. I mean, Coursera, Quantic, yeah. edX, LinkedIn, I mean, yeah. you name it. Um, there are a lot of great platforms like that. So um, I kind of just go back to what I said earlier. Like, I think... Um, obsession like whatever you like to learn and whatever way you like to learn it do that and you know lean into it completely and at some point during that obsession you're going to start to recognize patterns in yourself and those patterns are probably then going to be more um, objectable sort of nice connecting patterns you can start to put things together for yourself so i just think obsession is number one and obsession doesn't mean you you have to give yourself to that task every minute of every day but if it's five minutes every day, like that's your five minutes, like completely right. obsessed on those five minutes and then come back to it the next right. day. And if you can't, then don't beat yourself up uh, about it. Go back the next time. So I think there's a lot of like um, coaching you have to give yourself to, to know that your type of learning and the way you're doing it is totally valid and yeah. normal. And then you're going to observe someone else and say, I'm going to learn from her. Yeah. What is she doing that I, I need to figure out? So those would be my my heuristics in terms of learning. Nice. And to follow up on that, then how about for the listeners, any tips on their, um, I, it, you know, 
finding their meaning or purpose, anything that they can use today before they have access to your book, perhaps before they read all about it, any t specific tips you can give someone today? Yeah, well, one that I've, I've been sharing a lot lately. So this came from my, my PhD in the world of decision sciences. And so I mentioned I did something called bilingual decision making. So I really dove into decision making. And decision making is really the study of like a lot of human errors and mistakes and biases. I'm like, gosh, we're full of them. It's a wonder sometimes we make good decisions after all, because we're just so <laughs> full of things that guide us down a path. And we realize much later, like that was a really wrong decision. But one of the things from decision-making that really stood out that I think is super practical and very helpful today for anyone is this idea of anticipated regret. And anticipated oh. regret, as it sounds, is that imagine a future, maybe a near future, in which you don't do things. So let's take a really simple example. You wake up in the morning, and on your mind is to go to the gym. And then things come up during the day and you're exhausted. You've eaten really poorly, you know, whatever it is, you've had a glass of wine, I, I, whatever it is in your life, but then you wanted to go to the gym earlier in the day. So I think it's really important to think deeply, you know, okay, how will I feel if I don't go put yourself in an emotional state in the future? Mm. How will I feel if I do go? And then try to let that future state, and likely in this case, a person's going to choose to go to the gym. Mm -hmm. um, they're going to feel better if they go to the gym than not going to the gym. So put yourself in an emotional state and really sit with it for about 30 seconds. And there's a really good chance that a future emotional state is going to motivate a better action right now, and an action in which you will not regret something. So anticipated, use anticipated, anticipated regret to your advantage to make decisions so that you're not looking back and regretting things, small things and big things. Because most people, it's been documented very well, who are on their deathbeds, yeah. they're going to regret the things they didn't try. Right. So why not use that great information these forefathers and mothers gave to us and for, for right now? Get to the mm -hmm. gym today. You'll feel better. Wow. That's, yeah, I've never heard of that. And I think that's a fantastic technique. Anticipated regret. Because how will I feel if I don't do this? Or if I do do this, you know, whatever, whatever is most likely, whatever the easiest path is that we don't really want to take. Yeah. Well, uh, I appreciate your sharing with us today. Do you have anything before we leave? Um, any questions I forgot to ask that maybe the listeners would want to know or that you want to share? I think you covered so many good bases. Right now, I just be making stuff up. <laughs> Now, actually, there is one more question I want to ask. Well, two more. One is, um, what do you wish everyone knew? Like, if you could get one idea across to the world right now, what would that be? Yeah, that you and your daily actions are really important for someone somewhere now, but also someone somewhere later, your negative actions and po positive actions. And I say that because i a partial embodiment, embodiment of that. I mean, my parents both chose to donate an organ to me, but I can think of organ recipients or people who benefited from cancer, uh, students in a classroom who benefited because someone gave of themselves that day. So, you know, your actions influence someone somewhere. So you want your actions, actions to be more positive than negative. Again, you want to avoid your, your regret. So I think that would be the one thing I would, I would share at this very moment. I talk about connectedness a lot, and that's true connection. I mean, that's a true physical connection on how, it, particularly 
donating an organ and receiving an organ. I mean, you can't, you can't get any clearer than that and see the effect on the world around us, on people around us. So thank you for that. And my last question is just simply, uh, if you want to let the listeners know if they don't have a chance to go to my website, where can they find you um, on, you know, what are your book title names? Go ahead and tell me what you're working on and if, drop some links. Sure. Yeah. So I'll have to share the links later. I can't find them right now. But the, the three okay. things, if you want to just find about me personally, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn forward slash IN Zach Brooks. So Z-A-C-H. B-R-O-O-K-S, so LinkedIn, Zach Brooks, um, about uh, World Transplant Athletes. It's worldtransplantathletes.org. Um, eugenome is eugenomebiotech.com. And then the book titles, the two I have out so far, are Discovering Your Human Algorithm, How to Live with Meaning and Purpose. It's a yellow book cover, so I have copyright here. It's not the best framing, but it's yellow with kind of a Michelangelo uh, oh, okay. figure in the second book is discovering what activates you uh, it's blue there so you can find those on amazon um and enjoy the book and if you get something out of it then let me know but and if you don't get something out of it then write your own book <laughs> exactly we all have have books to release i think well thank you so much i really really appreciate your time and i'm going to um Say goodbye to the listeners and thank you for joining us. And I look forward to connecting with, with everyone later. So bye-bye everyone. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to head over to revkarenpodcast.com. That's R-E-V k-a-r-e-n podcast.com there you're going to find the tools for finding more meaning and happiness in your own life plus if you have a story that you want to share with me either on or off the air be sure to look for that form make sure you follow me so you get notified when new episodes drop and also i'd love to connect with you in my facebook group connectedness with rev karen so head over to rev i hope to see you there